Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. I've worked with Nanette for a long time, but never would I have guessed that I'd expect to see her pick up a pick up a guitar and start playing in a band, right? So it's but what's no. always amazing to me, Julie, I don't know if you've experienced this or not. I think some of the most creative, uh, some of the most intelligent people I've met also have an amazing musical talent. Now that should be saying something about me because other than when I played clarinet or saxophone in elementary school, I have zero musical talent. So um, I always admire people who do. I wholeheartedly agree. I, I was I was going to laugh and say, well, then I, I am not intelligent or creative because I have zero singing voice. And what what our conversation about music led me to think about was the importance of sounding boards in our life. I think I sound phenomenal. I love to sing. And I think everything that comes out of my mouth is just spot on. But the sounding boards will tell me in a very open, honest conversation is, I'm so bad. I make the people around me sound bad. So please zip it. So I think that, you know, again, in all seriousness, though, personally, professionally, those people that we can engage to bounce ideas off that will share with us feedback, even if it's not exactly what we want to hear, but it's what we need to hear. I do think that also helps us, keeps us balanced and as high functioning of people and professionals as we can possibly be. We're so excited to welcome Nanette Abahoff Jacobson today. She's Managing Director and Multi-Asset Strategist at Wellington Management Company and Global Investment Strategist for Hartford Funds. With over 25 years of experience in the capital markets, Nanette has held a variety of roles spanning the major asset classes. As the Global Investment Strategist, she analyzes and interprets markets and investment opportunities for those mutual funds that are sub-advised by Wellington Management Company and shares those views with Hartford Fund's sales organization, the financial professional community, and major broker dealers and distributors. She also advises Wellington Management's institutional clients, including pension funds, insurance companies, endowments and foundations, and central banks, consulting on strategic asset allocation issues to develop multi-asset investment solutions. Welcome, Nanette. Thank you, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we dive into a lot of the questions that I know so many are hoping to hear hear your thoughts on today, I'm curious, obviously having heard you present and speak over so many years and articulate really complex topics in such a, an easy to understand way, what led you to your profession today? How did you get started and, and we, how do we have the pleasure of being here with you today? Wow. Well, thank you, Julie. I um, appreciate the question because it makes me reflect and 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 think about like how did I get here and what was the path. Um, so, a couple of things. First of all, you know uh, from my bio that my background is computer science, um, and so I definitely have a penchant for uh, you know the geeky stuff like analyzing data and uh, figuring out what it all means. So there's that part of my brain. And then there's the other part, which is that I love communicating. And um, so being able to communicate 
um, dense analytical topics in a clear, understandable, accessible way is really creative for me, and I love doing it. Um, so that's one piece. And the second piece uh, uh, is that I come from a family of teachers. Both my mom and my dad were teachers, my dad at the college level, and my mom taught uh, in the public school system, fifth graders for 35 years. So I think I have that little bit of teacher in me, um, which uh, is maybe a genetic trait. I don't know. <laughs> well, Nanette, it's great to see you again, by the way. Uh, question I have for you is you mentioned teaching, and oftentimes when we're teaching, we're talking about things that have already happened, right? But you're in this unique role of not only reflecting back, but oftentimes I'm sure the questions you get are, where do we go from here? And so if I could ask you just to think about client portfolios for a moment and reflect back on where we've been over the last year or so, or maybe even longer, and where do you see things going from here? What should financial professionals have on their minds as we get ready to enter a, a new year and be thinking about you know, kind of where portfolios are positioned these days. So first, thank you, John. It's great to see you again. And uh, let me start by a quick flashback to uh, this past year, uh, which has been remarkable uh, because we have, from an economic standpoint, come out of the depths of a terrible, terrible health crisis and recession, um, and we've come back with flying colors in most parts of the economy. But I would say that all of the measures that policy implemented, the fiscal measures, the monetary measures, really did support the economy tremendously in a crisis that was a completely exogenous event a pandemic. No one could have prepared for that. But we've come through it, um, you know, relatively quickly. And consumer demand is coming back. Uh, the unemployment rate is coming down. You know, we're headed toward, uh, uh, we're around four and a half percent now, just coming up to an employment report. And uh, so, uh, you know, the economic backdrop has been incredibly uh, good. Now, the other thing is that even while there have been Delta variants, uh, we have had some hiccups along the way, granted, but markets uh, really haven't stopped hitting records. We've had momentary slips in equity markets, but generally um, it's been an incredible year with returns so far around 25% in the US equity markets and not far from that in non-US markets as well. So to your question, what do we do now? Um, you know, I can't talk about the future without uh, bringing in a key risk, uh, which we're dealing with right now, which is a new variant called Omicron. And uh, we, at, as we're sitting here right now, uh, we have so little data to analyze. Um, we need to respect the fact that this could be a risk 
to the recovery, um, not only in the United States, but all over the world. Hopefully, we will find in a week or so more about the contagion and more importantly, the virulence of the disease, uh, because we really don't know if this particular variant could escape vaccine effectiveness. And that is really key. This variant will not derail the economic recovery and that markets uh, in equities and non uh, global equities will continue to do well and continue to benefit from the liquidity in the system, the accommodative stance by the Federal Reserve, the fiscal support, and consumer, very strong consumer demand. Now, um, the one, and I know you'll get to this, John, but I will put one caveat out there, which is inflation, which we really were not thinking about a year ago. So let me leave it there and turn it back to you. Well, yeah, and I guess, Nanette, as I think about it, um, you know, it seems not long ago we were talking about the risks of deflation, but now we're talking about inflation. And I guess my question is, for, for folks that have been around the markets for quite a while, when markets start setting new highs and new highs and new highs, even if we don't boldly say so, I think there's a little part in the back of our mind that says, should we be waiting for that next shoe to drop? And I guess my question to you, Nanette, is as you consider inflation going into next year, is it the other shoe that's going to drop? Or is it something that you think we just have to be more cognizant of and perhaps, you know, uh, shift allocations in some way? Or how do we deal with this? How big of a problem is it in your mind at this point? Right. Uh, well, you know, I'm sure... All of us have experienced um, some form of supply chain disruption. Uh, you ordered something and you thought it was going to come in a few days and it's taken months and months. I can give you a big list of <laughs> items on my shopping list that have been delayed for months. So, um, you know, the causes of inflation are twofold. One is these supply chain disruptions, which are coming from very high prices in commodities. Uh, it's coming from labor shortages and also uh, the issues, uh, the freight issues that we're having at ports all over the world, um, which have either shut down because of COVID or are just incredibly congested. Um, and so that's the supply side. The demand side is that consumers are, you know, they're back in force and they want to buy stuff and they want to do stuff. And so consumer demand is very, very strong right now. Um, so on balance, John, I don't think that inflation is going to, uh, you know, be a shoe, the next shoe that drops. However, when I look at client portfolios, what, um, what I see is that portfolios are not positioned for inflation, particularly well. The assumption is that if I own equities, that should take care of my inflation protection. And I think to some extent it will if you are in cyclical types of sectors, uh, if you're in businesses that have pricing power and they can and those companies can raise prices um, and consumers will accept that. 
Um, but, you know, if inflation, which is right now over 5% for the past several months um, and was just 6% in October, um, if we're going to be looking at inflation for the next year or so at around 5%, then portfolios need to be positioned quite differently from the way they are right now. Nanette, it's interesting. We've only been together for a few minutes today, yet you've mentioned at least a dozen or more variables, um, obviously, that you're wrapping your arms around every moment of every day. And, and for the financial professionals with us listening today, I would imagine that that's the, the world that they're living in. All of these variables, their clients have access to such a velocity of information, namely from these devices. How do you engage your team on a day-to-day -day basis to take in all of this information, process it, and then make sense of it in order to help guide all of us? I'm thinking that the financial professionals with us might love to hear some of the tricks of a seasoned expert such as yourself in terms of how you manage the, the velocity and information flow day in and day out. You know, I do think it's the biggest challenge that we face um, because the amount of information flow is just, it is, I'll say it, it's overwhelming. And there's no possible way that anyone can cover and absorb the amount of information that's out there. So, you know, how I, um, how I do my own job and how the advice that I give professionals on my team is to really be selective about what you read and figure out where is are the sources of really value added information. Um, and it probably, I mean, you can read, you know, whatever newsfeed you want. I think it's really important to get different points of view. Um, so, you know, I generally, I try to read the Financial Times, which has a more global perspective. I read the Wall Street Journal, you know, for U.S. Uh, uh, perspective and somewhat global. I read Barron's. You know, you have to just immerse yourself in the, in the market's narrative. But then you need to select the, uh, uh, you know, the creators of content that have something different, something unique, something insightful to say, um, and just limit yourself to three to five content providers. I really mean that because otherwise you'll just spend all your time reading and never come to any conclusions. Um, you know, at Wellington, I have the good fortune of working with an incredibly talented group of people. And that just creates like an, uh, just this very uh, rich source of uh, material and non-consensus thinking. That's what I always try to encourage all the team members to do is speak up and speak up, especially if you have a different point of view. Now, if I could jump back to the conversation we were just having a moment ago on allocations, and obviously growth has ruled the day uh, for years now. But when I hear you talk about potential risks out there, it sounds like you're saying that financial professionals need to at least respect the risks that are out there. Yeah, definitely, John. And I'm I'm glad you didn't leave uh, us on the cliffhanger of inflation. And we got back to it so I can <laughs> share some thoughts on and, and changes that advisors might consider. So first, I just uh, want to emphasize that I do think 
we're in a new regime. Um, and it's so easy to attach oneself to the old regime. And you're absolutely right, John. The regime that we're coming out of is one where disinflation, falling prices, a strengthening China economy, and, uh, and also fairly slow growth in the United States and elsewhere, um, which and very low inflation. And so the trades, the allocations that worked since the financial crisis in 2008 may not be the same allocations that work for the next 10 years. So the allocations that worked in the past 10 years have been growth and technology all the time, every day. Um, and what we started to see happen this year was a rotation from growth into value-oriented strategies. And I put value in, I speak to value as a big umbrella. And in that umbrella, I would include uh, traditional value sectors like financials and energy, uh, but also other cyclical sectors like industrials, materials, um, you know, even deep cyclicals like travel and leisure and um, uh, and consumer discretionary. Uh, I would also put under that umbrella investments outside the US. So specifically European and Japanese equities. And actually, um, and this was sort of, you know, these have been stealth performers, but uh, Europe has done, has been very competitive with the US in equity space. Uh, and Japan is starting to pick up also. So underneath the surface, we're seeing this rotation into more cyclical sectors, more sectors that are less sensitive to higher rates, and I'll get back to that, um, and a rotation out of the US into international equities. Um, and I think it's important to look at your clients' portfolios and look at what their exposure is to the old regime, which was slow growth and low inflation, and how that portfolio is set up for the new regime, which is stronger growth and higher inflation. So part of that calculus is to change, modify your equity exposures. But the other part, uh, John, is to look at um, an asset class and sector weights in the commodity sector, which is going to be most sensitive to an increase in inflation. Um, now, in that bucket, it could be straight commodities. Obviously, that's not for everyone because they come with a lot of volatility, um, but it could be natural resource, commodities, equities, miners, um, and it could even uh, um, uh, be in inflation-linked bonds like TIPS. So lots of things to review and look at um, and to discuss with clients. Nanette, I, a moment ago, you called it a health crisis. And I love how you phrase that as opposed to the, the global pandemic or some of the other words that have been maybe more frequently used. 
my my personal mantra during so much of this time has been structured yet flexible. I know they're oxymorons, but I sort of feel like that's the world that we're all living in, and especially financial professionals as they talk to their clients. From your perspective, what are one or two themes or areas that might most surprise clients in 2022? And how might financial professionals start having those conversations now in order to, to combat those surprised uh, situations in uh, 2022? Yeah, so thanks for that question, Julie. I do think that what financial advisors will find when they look at their clients' portfolios is a, a concentration in the mega cap stocks and mega tech stocks um, and I'm not saying that you should get rid of that exposure. I still think that having growth exposure makes sense, but you at least want to make sure that your client's portfolios are exposed to a different environment than we've been in. Again, moving from a slow growth, low inflation environment to a stronger growth higher inflation environment. And the problem with all that concentration and growth and tech is that if yields rise, those sectors are likely not going to perform very well. And we've seen this in various episodes. Uh, and the reason is that the multiples, the valuations that are supporting those companies are really based on earnings that look out 10, 20, 30 years. And almost like a bond, if you are paying a multiple based on those future cash flows and then discount them at a higher yield, the value of those cash flows are going to go down. So that is the idea behind tech stocks and growth stocks acting more like a bond than other equities. And so, you know, my advice is just to uh, make sure that you've got balance in your portfolio because inflation really could surprise both to the upside and be more persistent than the markets think. Well, and then uh, given, given that outlook, let's uh, kind of change gears a little bit in the portfolio and look at fixed income. So obviously, fixed income remains an important part of the average client portfolio, but would you be setting expectations differently with clients as we head into next year, given what you just said about the risk of inflation and rising rates? And then secondly, for the financial professionals out there, as they review fixed income positions, uh, kind of what are you recommending now that people take a look at in the fixed income area? Yeah, you may see my gears turning uh, in my brain because fixed income is not the most popular asset class these days. Um, you know, not uh, we saw yields go up this year, uh, not terrific returns, but what you can see is that returns to shorter duration uh, sectors did better. So my uh, thoughts for the future in fixed income is number one, remember the role that fixed income plays. Um, so even though yields are low, they still do provide some diversification benefit relative to equities. So if we suffer a major setback in the equity market, I would still expect high quality fixed income to do better 
and equities. And that's all we can ask for when yields are one and a half percent or lower. Um, so, you know, have some allocation to high quality fixed income that will cushion any sell off that we have in the equity markets. Um, number two, you know, since we're in an environment where growth uh, looks to be, you know, fairly robust, um, the uh, I, I certainly would include credit instruments in my fixed income portfolio. Um, but, you know, specifically with an eye toward valuations. Um, so, for instance, a lot of spreads right now are very tight. But I do think that default rates are going to stay low. Um, and so, you know, there isn't terrific value in credit. Um, but to the extent that interest rates are rising because growth is strong, uh, spread should uh, be fine and maybe even tighten a little bit. And then the third piece of uh, uh, the third insight I have is to look at floating rate structures. Uh, so these are going to perform better um, as the Fed embarks on beginning to hike rates. Um, so we haven't talked much about the Fed, but they've already signaled that they are going to start tapering their bond purchases and uh, sometime in 2022 hiking rates. And because that affects the short end of the yield curve most, that will probably benefit um, floating rate instruments that are pegged to a short-term benchmark. Uh, so, you know, just to summarize that, keep some allocation to high-quality fixed income, have some spread exposure for return, and focus on floating rate credit. And I would be remiss if I left out munis. Uh, I think municipal bonds uh, play a very specific role, uh, particularly in individuals' portfolios that um, uh, you know need some kind of tax relief. And muni bonds are about you know one of the few games left in town. Uh, so to provide attractive uh, tax-adjusted returns, I still think munis play an important role. Thanks, Nanette, for that guidance. And I'm confident that the financial professionals with us today certainly appreciate that. Um, and narrowing that, that list of, of conversation topics, at least uh, in the near term with clients. I know that one of the most frequent inbound emails and calls that I receive from financial professionals is around how the, the health crisis over the last 20 or 21 months has obviously changed systems and processes and the way that we communicate so significantly. And in so many ways, it was almost unimaginable. I'm curious for you and your team, how has the remote work setup changed the way you communicate? What impact has it had on you? And, and what are your thoughts on, on that process going forward? Um, yeah, no, I think that, uh, of course, uh, working from home has been a huge change. Um, 
The good news is that from a productivity standpoint, uh, we have really not missed a beat. In fact, I would say we're all maybe more productive <laughs> working from home. Um, uh, you know, if you have the benefit of not being distracted by so many things that can be distracting from the lawnmower to, you know, pets. Um, uh, but I think, you know, the thing that I've tried to be more aware of is what's going on in people's lives. And when you're in the office and you have more um, spontaneous interactions with, uh, with people, it's easier to know what's going on in, you know, at home or in someone's life or something they're struggling with. It's a lot harder to do that remotely. Um, and so um, I try, I don't do a good enough job, but I do try to reach out to people separately from work topics and just see how people are doing and how they're managing and if they're facing any challenges. Uh, because I did have a case of someone um, where a colleague, he, you know, wasn't returning my emails. And, you know, when you start thinking like what's going on, and then it turned out there was a problem, a health problem in his family, and I didn't know about it. And he, you know, wasn't that upfront about sharing it, but um, certainly came at our relationship uh, differently once I understood that. So, you know, I think it requires outreach and sensitivity. I think focusing on the people side of your team, especially during this time, is is so important and probably has been a great reminder for all of us that, uh, you know, talking about whether it's our background that we're seeing on video or trying to replace what I call the, the door jam, holding the cup of coffee conversation that we used to have and we all took for granted. Um, I think is so important, especially as we we approach year end and, and that reflective time of year. So I love that guidance, Nanette. Thank you for sharing that. To the extent that you can take a walk outside with somebody, you know, I don't know what everyone's uh, situation is at, at work or, but um, I've been doing that where, you know, either the cup, if there are days that I am at work, I make sure that I schedule coffees or lunches with people. Um, and if I'm at home, I reach out to people in my neighborhoods to ask them if they want to take a walk. Uh, and that, you know, I think we all crave relationships. So anything that you can do uh, to nurture that, I think is a good thing. So on a related topic, then it's a kind of a informal question. I like to ask a lot of people, where would you say you do your best thinking? We talked earlier about being surrounded by information and you know, I've, I've visited the war room at Wellington multiple times, as I'm sure many of the financial professionals listening have, where there's all kinds of opinions and outlooks and insight. But do you do you do your best thinking in the midst of that data? Or are there other things you do where you have those aha moments? Because I think it's important for all of us to think about how we think and where we think. Yeah, it's a great question, John. And um so my experience is that you need to let your brain rest and you need to uh, have space to think creatively and think outside the box. So, um, and whatever that is, you know, it could be uh, on a run, exercising, 
for me, uh, music is a great escape. Um, and so it's either listening to music or actually making music. Um, and I find that it's a great way to just completely, again, use uh, different parts of my brain. And then I find that that relief just opens up uh, channels of creativity. So Nanette, I have to, I have to ask, uh, you mentioned making music. Do tell. Uh, is that something <laughs> that, yeah, obviously, it's something you do. Let's hear it. All right. Um, so I started playing guitar when I was seven years old and I've been singing for as long. Uh, and then, you know, life gets in the way. I got married, I had kids and I really, um, uh, and I was working, you know, intensely for many years. Um, and so I backburnered that, um, for quite some time. Recently, well, a few years ago, I decided to pick up my guitar again and um, uh, and pursue a different style of music. I used to, you know, play and sing folk and pop and that those kinds of genres. And I've been uh, in a jazz ensemble. Uh, so I'm playing jazz guitar. Uh, I'm singing jazz standards and, you know, scatting even, dare I say. <laughs> so... And That's you know, awesome. please don't ask for any don't ask for any demonstrations. <laughs> but it's okay because uh, Julie really, Jenjack really is a very Julie Jenjack <laughs> is a very very popular heavy metal singer. You may not have realized that, but yeah, that's her thing. I I, I did not. This is a discovery. <laughs> if we wanted everyone oh, to log yeah. off immediately, I would start singing. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> well, we share a passion. That's great to know. Well, Nanette, when we think about portfolios and the conversations that uh, financial professionals are going to be having with their clients coming up, I mean, this is probably something many of us are thinking about right now, which is what changes do we need to embrace? How do we communicate those to our clients? Uh, I may be asking you to rehash a little bit, but if if there's a couple of things you would tell financial professionals to keep in mind as they approach their clients uh, coming up here in the next month or two, uh, what's one or two things you would tell them is very important to get across? Well, the first thing I would do is uh, make sure you set up a meeting with uh, each client and that the purpose of the meeting is to take a step back and to look at your portfolio allocations and to see what those portfolio allocations imply about your view of the economy and markets over the next year or so. And then, you know, tease out of that discussion, oh, you know, this portfolio really is saying that I'm expecting uh, growth to be slow and inflation to continue to be running at 2%. Um, and if that's the case, start thinking about ideas. Do you want to shorten the duration of your fixed income portfolio? That could be one fairly easy move. Two, do you want to rotate into some sectors of the equity market that are more cyclical and more value oriented. That could be 
commodity type uh, exposures or cyclicals or financials or energy? Um, and three, do you want to own some equities outside of the U.S.? Uh, you'll notice I did not include emerging markets. I think there are some deeper issues there for emerging markets to recover from a health standpoint and infrastructure standpoint. But certainly in other developed economies like Japan and uh, Europe, the, there are better valuations and opportunities in the equity markets. Um, and then finally, you know, direct inflation protection, which would be either through commodities or inflation-linked bonds. Uh, and of course, just overarching recommendation that I know a lot of strategists say that municipal bonds are expensive, but I still think that they play a very important role for uh, better tax-adjusted yields, particularly in an environment when uh, government bond yields are so low. I know we haven't touched on the institutional work that you do. I'm curious, um, are those conversations that you're having with institutional clients similar to what you're having with private clients and financial professionals? Are there differences? Could you share some insight with us, please, on that uh, topic? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would say there are uh, three trends. Uh, the first one is uh, definitely more activity on the commodities and inflation protection side. Uh, so clients looking for more direct inflation protection through either commodity-related assets or infrastructure, anything that looks like a real asset, uh, could be real estate also. Uh, again, so long as the real estate uh, investment is adjusting for higher inflation. So that's one conversation. Uh, the second one is definitely along the lines of ESG. So environment, social, and governance. Um, and institutional clients are really, uh, I mean, they're most active overseas, but um, even in the U.S., there's much, much more focus on moving into strategies that are focused on decarbonization. Um, and then the third trend is uh, in alternatives uh, where clients, uh, institutional clients continue to look for private investments uh, that uh, uh, will give them superior returns relative to the public markets, uh, which at least from a valuation standpoint, look on the expensive side. So I can't let you go, Nanette, without asking, because every time I try to read about cryptocurrencies, I start to get a headache. Uh, but I have had more individual clients, some of whom are relative novices in investing, ask me about crypto in the past six months than probably ever. But, you know, at the same time, I, as a, as a financial professional, have a hard time grasping, you know, how these things work and how I should think about them. What, where does Wellington stand on crypto? Um, is it time that advisors really ought to be thinking about crypto as a as a separate asset class to be allocated to in a typical client portfolio? Or are we still too early for that? How how should financial professionals be thinking about it? Yeah, you know, uh, we are looking at what the features are 
of Bitcoin and how it uh, uh, meets the criteria for a separate asset class. Um, I think right now, um, you know, we as a firm are certainly keeping on top of the area and indirectly we are making investments in companies uh, that offer uh, Bitcoin as a form of payment or an exchange that is dealing with uh, Bitcoin transactions, though we don't have any specific uh, fund uh, uh, that accesses cryptocurrency. My own view is that the technology is fascinating. Uh, I do think that the technology will serve a long-term purpose, uh, but right now, uh, for any individual investor or client that an advisor is speaking to, I think the first thing you need to look at is the volatility of the asset class. And we know that the volatility has been upwards of 80% annually, 80 to 100% in Bitcoin. Um, so the first question, if a client is interested in cryptocurrency, is can you weather that kind of volatility? Uh, because you need to be prepared for that. And because of that volatility and the extent to which uh, cryptocurrency has appreciated this year, I certainly think that it has speculative qualities. Uh, and so it's very difficult at this stage to separate uh, what role Bitcoin plays in a portfolio because um, uh, of the extreme volatility and the fact that it has behaved like a speculative asset. So for now, um, you know, it's all based on your risk tolerance. Uh, I do think the technology uh, will uh, evolve and look, you know, regulators are involved, the government is involved. So that's a sure sign as any that uh, the technology has legs. What form it ultimately takes, I don't know, um, but it's certainly something that we want to keep a close eye on and, uh, and monitor uh, because it's part of the financial landscape and it's a huge innovation, uh, which I fully respect. I think that's great guidance, Nanette. Thank you for that. And before we wrap up today, I'm curious, how do you plan to change the way that you work after, after the remote work environment that, that we've all experienced as you look forward? I, my operative word is to maybe a more balanced world, whatever that may shake out to be in 2022. What changes will you make to your systems and processes and communication based upon what you've learned um, in the past? Yeah, I, um, you know, I go back to my comment about relationships and communication. Um, I, I have found this past year that the power of the team is so much greater than the sum of the individuals. Um, you just get so much better output uh, and it's energizing uh, and you end up with a better recommendation. Uh, if everyone is speaking openly, honestly, challenging each other in respectful ways. So I think that would be my parting thought and what I will try to hold on to as we return to the office uh, and have more human interactions, uh, which I'm looking forward to, is to just, you know, keep communicating, 
uh, keep building relationships uh, because the uh, uh, some of the parts uh, is really not as valuable as the entire team. I may have gotten that expression a little wrong, but I think you know what I mean. Well, Nanette, those are some great closing thoughts. And I just, on behalf of Hartford Funds and all of the financial professionals who are listening or watching to the podcast, Julie and I just want to say thanks for being with us today. Always appreciate the insight. And you've given us a lot to think about, not just about the markets, but also how we relate to one another and maybe how we can all do some of our best thinking in the months to come. It's my pleasure, John and Julie. Really appreciate being able to share my thoughts and uh, wish all of your clients uh, well and a successful new year. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human-Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.